Hey, I like that. You guys are excited. That's what I'm talking about. So we started a series called I Am, where we're looking at the seven I Am statements of Jesus. We took a break for the last couple of weeks, and we had a couple <clears throat> guest speakers, and I hope that you guys enjoyed them. But we're going to jump back into our series, and we're going to start off in John chapter 10. And I just want to remind you that in this series, we're not just looking to give you more information about Jesus. This is Jesus himself saying, this is who I am, and I want you to know me. So Jesus wants you to know him, and our hope and prayer is that through this series, by the end of it, you will be closer to Jesus. And that's my objective this morning, is for you to walk away from this place today closer to Jesus. Amen? Amen. So we're going to start off in John chapter 10. It says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, or another translation says to have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, so when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, or another version says, I know my own, and my sheep, or my own, know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. If you underline in your Bible, I want you to underline verse 10. It says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, or to have it abundantly. This is why Jesus came, was so that you and I could have abundant life. This was a super helpful verse for me when I was kind of coming out of my teenage years and becoming a young adult and looking to surrender my life more fully to the Lord. There was times where he asked me to give up things that I didn't understand or to do things that I didn't understand and didn't make sense to me. When he asked me to do things that made sense, it was easy, but in the times that I didn't understand, it was challenging. And it was helpful for me to remember that when Jesus asks me to do things that I don't understand, oftentimes that's him trying to lead me towards abundant life, him trying to lead me from the life that I'm seeking to a life that's more full than even what I could ever comprehend. So when the Lord asks you to surrender, what he's really asking you to surrender to is the abundant life that he came to provide for you and for me. The fact that we have a good shepherd should be super comforting to our hearts. And I don't know what each one of you who are here this morning are walking through, but I just want to remind you that whatever you're facing, whatever you're walking through, you have a good shepherd that's going to walk with you. In fact, I just want you to say that out loud. I want you to say, I have a good shepherd. Would you say it with me? I have a good shepherd. I want to share with you this morning three things that the good shepherd offers to us and then three responses to the good shepherd. So we're going to start off with the three things the good shepherd offers us. The first thing he offers us is direction. The good shepherd provides direction for the sheep. He says when it's time to go and when it's time to stay. He says when it's time to eat and when it's time to drink. And the sheep follow the good shepherd. In this story, there's three players. We have the thief, who represents the enemy, represents Satan. 
We have the good shepherd who represents Jesus himself, and then we have the sheep that represents you and me. And that can be a little bit discouraging if you happen to know anything about sheep, because sheep, as it turns out, are kind of dumb animals. So that can be a little discouraging, like, oh, really? We're sheep? Okay. But we can do some dumb stuff sometime if we're honest. But the fact that sheep are dumb is actually, it's actually worse than that. They're not just dumb. They're also dumb and stubborn. Like, if you were dumb, you could just kind of go with the flow and maybe hide your, your dumbness. But the fact that we're dumb and stubborn is like even worse. Like, we fight the Lord too at times. It's horrible. And then sheep also have horrible eyesight. So they can't see into the future and see into the future to make wise decisions based on the future. And that's kind of like us, too, a lot of times. I learned a little bit about sheep this week. I actually talked to some people that owned sheep and talked to some people that cared for sheep over the years. And I learned something interesting, which is that sheep, if a shepherd were to take sheep and bring them to a pasture, a large pasture, maybe like 200 acres of beautiful grass to eat, the sheep would stay in like a little area, maybe like 30 by 30 or 40 by 40, because they're nervous and they're kind of scared. So they'd stay in this small area, and they actually wouldn't leave that area at all. And they would eat there for days, even though they have to go to the bathroom in that same spot, and they would end up eating their feces, and they would end up getting sick if it wasn't for a shepherd to lead them away to a place where there's better food for them to eat. And at first I thought about that, and I'm like, "Ah, we wouldn't really do that. But then I thought about sin and how sin oftentimes is us overindulging in things that we shouldn't, sometimes even partaking of things that we shouldn't. And oftentimes we'll stay there while sin eats us apart and kills us from the inside out. I want to give you another analogy about why we need the Lord's direction in our life. I heard this week about how um, cyclists work together in teams. And sometimes when a cyclist goes out, they'll go out alone, but oftentimes they'll go out in teams, and it can be kind of a team sport too. And when cyclists are riding in teams, the person who's in the front, it's their job to set the pace, to decide where they're going, and then one of the really important things that the person in the front does is they break the wind. It's like they cut a path in the wind. And they said that the people who follow behind the person in the lead, who follow the direction of the person in front, will use 50% of the energy that the person in the front does. So the person in the front is expending all this energy, and everyone who follows their lead and stays in the wake of that person who's in the lead uses only 50% of their energy. Some of you have been walking through life, and you feel really, really worn out from life. It feels like it's been exhausting. Some of you have gone through a season where you just come, come to the place this morning where you're like, I don't even know if I can continue. I am just beat up by life. And I wonder this morning if part of that is you've been expending all of your energy trying to be the leader of your life, trying to set the direction for your life, instead of following the direction of the good shepherd and falling in line and follow him, following him And it doesn't even take anywhere near as much energy to follow Jesus as it does to get out there and try and do it on our own. What I want you to know this morning about God's leadership and direction is God does not lead those who want to direct their own lives. God doesn't lead people that want to direct their own lives. He only is willing to lead people that are willing to surrender to him, to say, I'm the sheep 
and you're the shepherd, and I'm willing to follow you, and I'm willing to trust you when you say it's time to go, and trust you when you say it's time to stay. I trust your direction in life. He will only lead those who don't want to direct their own lives. The second thing the good shepherd offers us is correction. Some of you will probably remember um, another time in the Bible where Jesus was telling a story, and he was telling a story again about sheep, and he talked about the lost sheep. He talked about a shepherd that had a hundred sheep, and one of those sheep wandered off, and he talked about how the good shepherd would leave the 99 to go and chase the one that wandered off. How many of you have wandered off a time or two in your life? I know I have. I think all of us have that tendency. And what great news that we serve a good shepherd that will literally chase after us to come and find us when we've wandered off. How many of you guys have ever lost something that was important to you? Anybody ever lose anything important? How many of you ever lost a person? That's like a whole, whole other level of losing things. Like, you lost your phone, okay, you better go find it, that's a big deal. But you lost a child or something, like this is, this is a big deal. One time I lost a person, okay? So um, I was actually on a missions trip. And we had been in, in this place for like a week or a little bit longer than that. And it was the last day of the trip. And uh, we were going to go hang out and rest for the day before we went home. And half the team wanted to go shopping and half the team wanted to go to the beach. And so the missionary that we were working with said, I'll take the people that want to go shopping and you take the people that want to go to the beach. So I said, okay. So we went to the beach and we were at the beach for the day. And it was fun and it was good. And we were supposed to meet him back at this place at 5 o'clock and we were going to go get dinner. So I kind of gather everybody up, and we go to this point that we're going to meet him to go get dinner. And I look around, and there was eight of us to start with, and so I just counted real quick, and I said, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And I kind of looked around, and I said, I'm sure we started with eight. So I counted again, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Who are we missing? And I realized Melissa is missing. I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to explain to this girl's parents that I lost her in Mexico? Like, this is going to be a problem, you know? So then we go back to the beach, and we're looking for her, and we can't find her anywhere. And I'm thinking, when did I see her last? And I remember the last time I saw her, her and these two other girls had gone out kind of deep in the water, and they were kind of like up to their, above their shoulders. And I'm like, did she ever come out of the water? And I asked the other girls, and they said, yeah, she did come out of the water. And I said, did someone take her? I'm like, my heart is starting to race. We're like walking up and down the beach trying to find her. We can't find her anywhere. So we go back to the place that we're supposed to meet, the missionary, and I decide I'm going to go there and confess that I lost somebody and see if he has any good ideas. And we get there, and we're waiting for him. And he was, he was late. He was still on his way. And uh, I looked over the heads of my team. And in the distance, I saw a stone bench, and I saw someone sitting on the stone bench, and I thought, that kind of looks like Melissa. I'm looking at her more, and I'm like, I think that is Melissa. And so I point, and I say, is that Melissa? And everybody went running to Melissa, and we got over there. The girls are all crying. I'm just trying to, like, settle my heart down. And so it turns out Melissa had gone to the bathroom, and then she came out, and there was, like, six entrances to the beach, and she couldn't remember which one she came in on. So she just picked one. It was like a long entrance and a long path you had to walk down. She went down a few of them and got down to the end of the path and like looked around and couldn't find anybody. And she got turned around and didn't know where she was, so she just sat down on this bench and cried and figured we'd come find her, which we did. <laughs> but, you know, when we found her, like, 
We weren't mad at her. Like, honestly, I was just relieved. Like, it wasn't like yelling at her, like, why did you do this? Or why did you scare us half to death? I was just so relieved to have found Melissa, who I thought I lost in Mexico. And you know, that's how God sees us when we've wandered off. He's not mad at us. He's not coming at us to, to yell at us. He's coming to us just excited that we're home excited that we're found. And I want you to know this morning, if you are here this morning and you've wandered off, God's just excited that he could find you this morning, excited that he could be back with you today. This isn't just what Jesus does. This is who he is. He can't, it's not like he makes a decision to be kind to you when he finds you because he knows it's the right thing to do. No, this is who Jesus is. He just wants his sheep to be found. He wants you to be found and me to be found. What I want you to understand about correction is correction is only unwanted when you love your mistake. Correction is only bucked against, it's only fought against, it's only unwanted when you love your mistake. When you love the thing you ran to more than you love the good shepherd. When the good shepherd shows up in your life and brings correction and you love him more than the thing, you're open to the correction. You're willing for that correction. But sometimes we fight against that correction because we actually love the thing we ran to more than we love the Lord. How many of you have ever seen a, a picture of Jesus carrying a lamb on his shoulders? Maybe you saw it in, in, uh, in kids' church, or maybe you saw it in the back of your picture Bible. I have a picture here of Jesus with a lamb on his shoulder. Aww. It's so sweet, isn't it? Look at Jesus carrying that little lamby. Isn't it nice? Jesus is so, he's giving a piggyback ride. Well, I guess a sheep back ride to this, this little sheep. It's so nice, isn't it? Well, there's, I found out there's actually more to the story here. Um, sometimes sheep have a tendency to wander off, like we all do. Like that's human nature. We have a tendency to wander off at times. And Jesus will start off really without even bringing correction, but by bringing instruction. He'll say, why don't you come back over here with everyone? Like, you don't really want to be over there. If you're over there, you're going to get yourself into trouble. Why don't you just stay over here with everyone? Not even really correction, more just instruction. But then if we don't respond to the instruction, then he has to bring correction into our life. And sometimes he'll be more stern and he'll say, look, I told you not to go over there don't go over there anymore. I want you to stay over here with everyone else. I want you to stay in the pen. I want you to stay with the, in the place that you're safe. And then if we don't respond to that, some people are more prone to wander off repeatedly than others. Some people always seem to have to learn the hard way. I feel like I was that way when I was young, and some of you probably were too. Some of us wander off more and more, and we don't seem to take the instruction the Lord gives us. So then the good shepherd will come along with his staff, <clears throat> he'll take the staff and he'll smack the sheep on the head is really what he does. It doesn't actually hurt the sheep. It just lets the sheep know like, hey, he's serious. He's not messing around. Like, you got to come back here. So he'll smack the sheep and then he'll speak to the sheep in a stern voice and he'll say, get over here. I told you to stay here. Quit wandering off. You're going to get yourself in trouble. And this is where the story gets a little more intense. So if that sheep keeps wandering off, the good shepherd will take the sheep and he will break its front legs. And that sounds really, really cruel. And that sounds horrible. But the good shepherd knows that if the sheep continues to wander off, 
the sheep is going to die. The sheep is going to die. There's no way around it. The wages of sin is always death. Sin always leads to death. And so the good shepherd takes the sheep and he breaks its legs and then he puts it on its shoulder. And that sounds cruel and I get that, but let me give you an example from your life. How many of you have ever had kids before? So your kid, you're playing with them in the backyard and the kid starts to run away from you and run towards the street and you can hear a car coming down the street. And you start to yell and you say, get back over here, it's not funny, get back over here. And then you, you run and you catch the kid that's about to run in the street and you grab it and you say, you can't do that, you can't run towards the street, there's cars coming, you're going to die. And the kid's laughing because the kid is like two and has no idea what you're saying. Just thought it was fun to run away from you for a little bit. And then you put the kid down, you're playing again, and you're chasing in the backyard, and it takes off headed for the street again. And it's running, you're saying, get back here, stop. Don't run away from me when I call you. Get over here. And the kid doesn't listen, runs for the street. You grab it, and what do you do? I hope you spank your child. <laughs> like, I know that that's not popular anymore. Maybe it's even illegal. I don't really care. My spanking days are hopefully done. But like, you spank your child because you love your child. You might spank your child with tears on your face before there's even tears on theirs because this is the most loving thing that you could do is to discipline your child because if you don't, they're going to die. How many of you have ever seen a, a parent walking around Darien Lake with a kid on a leash? I, I see this and I'm like, that's for your dog. Why do you put your kid on it? Well, it's because you didn't spank your kid when they were running towards the streets. Now you put your child on a leash, you weirdo. Like, come on. <laughs> Sorry if you're a leash person, you know. <laughs> but Jesus, in his kindness, he knows that when we wander off, it is going to lead to death. So he takes us and he breaks us in order to correct, bring correction, the correction in our life that we need. But then you see, this is where he shows up here with the, with the lamb over its shoulders. So then he puts the lamb over his shoulders and he carries the lamb usually for two months it takes for the legs on this lamb to heal. For two whole months he carries this lamb around. During that time, that sheep gets to know the shepherd in a way that the other sheep don't even get to know the shepherd. He's so close to them. He hears every word that shepherd says, every single word. He can feel the shepherd's heartbeat while he lays there with his legs dangling down across his chest. What scientists say, I don't know how they figured this out. They certainly didn't ask sheep. But somehow they figured out that after just a couple hours, the sheep doesn't remember how it broke its legs. All it knows is that its legs hurt. After a week, the sheep can't even remember that it happened. Doesn't even know that it ever happened to begin with. All he knows is, it's weird, this guy is carrying me around on his shoulders and my legs feel kind of sore. Like, sheep has no idea. But they tell us, that when the sheep is healed, that he will put the sheep down and the sheep will never wander off again. Never. It will never in the rest of its life wander off again. And it's not because it's scared of getting its legs broken, because it doesn't even remember that its legs were broken. It doesn't even remember that its legs were ever hurt at any time before. It's because the sheep fell so in love with the shepherd that he wants to be close. In fact, this sheep will not even stay like 10 or 15 or 20 feet away from the shepherd like the other sheep. 
It will be the sheep that is closest to the shepherd every day of its life moving forward. It will stay right with the shepherd because it fell in love with the shepherd. Some of you who are here this morning, you might be in this place. I suspect not all of you are. Most of you probably aren't. But some of you are in a season in your life where you wandered off. And you wandered off repeatedly over and over again. You didn't respond to the teaching. You didn't respond to the gentle correction. And so the good shepherd, out of love, probably with tears on its face, had to break you in order to protect you from wandering off to death. And if you're in that place this morning, if you're in that place where you feel like you're just broken, where you feel like all the freedoms of your life have been taken away, everyone else is out doing their thing, but here you are, just sitting alone, just you and Jesus. I want to tell you two important things. The first thing is don't mistake the breaking for a lack of love. Don't mistake that breaking that happened in your life for a lack of love. It was actually the most loving thing that the good shepherd could have done. Just like when you chased after your kid that was running towards the street and took your kid, and you realized you're going to have to spank this child, it was actually the most loving thing that you had to do. It broke your heart to do it. You don't want to hurt your kid, but you also don't want him to run in the street and die. So out of love, you had to bring correction. That's actually what the breaking that you're experiencing in your life is right now, is it's the love of the good shepherd. The second thing is to make sure you learn what he's trying to teach you in this season. Don't miss what he's trying to teach you. Don't just sit there and be bitter that you're broken. Don't be bitter that you're experiencing this pain, but actually learn the thing that he wants you to learn in this season. I don't want the good shepherd to have to break me. I really don't. Like, I don't want to go through that. I want to respond to his gentle instruction. But if he's got to break me to save my soul, then break me. If I have to go through life with broken legs and save my soul and not wander out there and die and walk away from the Lord, then go ahead and I'd rather go through life without legs if that's what it means to be close to Jesus. What I want you to understand about correction is you don't have to understand completely to obey immediately. So many times we approach the Lord and we're like, well, if what the Lord asks me to do makes sense, then I'll do it if I understand. But if what he asks me to do I don't understand, then like, well, Lord, if you understood my situation, you probably wouldn't ask me to do that. Like, if you understood what life felt like for me, if you understood what I was going through, then I think you would understand and you wouldn't ask that of me. But what maturity in Christ looks like is obeying him even if we don't understand. And I can tell you from my life that I oftentimes don't understand the things the Lord asks me to do until I'm down the road a ways looking back on the thing that he asked me to do. When I get down the road a ways and I look back at what he asked of me, I go, okay, now I can see why it makes sense. But in the moment, oftentimes it takes faith to obey what he's asking of me. But when you get to the other side, you can oftentimes look back and go, yeah, I can see why he would ask me to do that. That's why parents will say things to their kids like, you'll understand when you're an adult. AKA, you'll get further down the road and you'll look back and thank me for the things that I did that right now you're frustrated about. It's the same thing for us. We get further down the road in our walk with the Lord and we can look back and we can be thankful for the things that he did in our life. 
The third thing that Jesus offers us is he offers us protection. Jesus wants you to know that he is not just a hired hand. He is the owner of us. And as our owner, he offers us protection. One of the things that I've learned is that you take care of things differently when you own them versus when you rent them. I wish this wasn't true, but I have found out that it's true. Um, I have a kind of a good example from my own life of this. When I was 20, a friend of mine was getting married in Florida, and a bunch of my friends for college were going down for the wedding. So I hopped on a plane, and we went down there, and I had a friend who had gotten down there the day before me, and he was going to pick me up from the airport, and I, he was going to rent the car, and I was going to uh, rent the hotel, and so we we're going to kind of split up the expenses just to make it cheaper. So he got down there the day before me, and I was coming out of the airport, and he was going to pick me up, and I expected him to get like a Toyota Corolla or like whatever the cheapest passenger car was to get, right? Like I figured he was going to buy something cheap or whatever. So I walk out of the airport, and I look, and I just start shaking my head, and he's driving a Ford Mustang Cobra, the fastest Mustang in production at the time. And I thought to myself, this is such a bad idea. I don't even think I should get into this car. Like, it's Friday at 4.30 right now. I don't come back to the airport until Monday at 11. Like, I wonder what the world record is for the most tickets in a weekend, because I'm pretty sure we're going to break that record. And we tore that car up. I mean, we found out what this car could and couldn't do. I mean, we brought this car back on Monday, and it needed a new set of tires immediately. Like, it was a smoke show all weekend, whether we were trying or not. Like, you couldn't even pull out without spinning the tires in this thing. And, you know, if, if my friend would have owned this car, he would have taken care of it very differently. First of all, he would have never let me drive it, that's for sure. But then also, he probably would have just kept it in his car and brought it out for car shows and to wax it and wash it and to show his friends. Like, it would have been a showpiece. But because he rented it and didn't own it, he had no problem tearing it up. And the Lord says in this scripture that he doesn't take care of us like he's a renter. He takes care of us like he owns us. In fact, he gives the analogy of wolves coming. And he says, when wolves come, the hired hand will run away and the sheep will scatter. But when the wolf comes and he's there, the wolf is going to have a fight on his hands and he's going to protect us. So when he says he's the good shepherd, he is your protector. This parable is actually a story that encapsulates the gospel message. This is Jesus trying to explain the gospel in a way that people would understand in that day. And there's three responses that we can have to the gospel message. There's three responses that we can have to this story about the good shepherd. So as I'm sharing these responses with you this morning, I want you to just kind of ask yourself and evaluate your life and say, what is my response to the good shepherd? What is my response to the message of the gospel? The first response that people have is some people will say, no way, not me. No way, not me. Like, this is too good to be true. I wish it were true, but it's not me. This is someone who believes they have out-sinned the grace of God. Your sin was so big that Jesus couldn't possibly forgive your sins. Actually, some people who have accepted the Lord as their Savior still struggle with this today, where they feel like they sinned too much, their sin was too big, and they, God couldn't possibly forgive their sins. 
If that's you this morning, you might have a fight on your hands. And that fight might be with someone that's bigger than you. Check out the scripture in Isaiah 118. It says, come now, let us reason together. That's like British talk for like, we're about to have a fight on our hands. That's what that means, okay? Come now, let us reason together. you in trouble. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So it's not like Jesus somehow didn't see your sin. It's not like he was busy helping somebody over here and he missed the stuff that you did. Nope, he saw every single bit of it. He knows the sins you've committed, the sins you're committing at this moment, and the sins you're going to commit in the future. He sees all of it. In the scripture, he acknowledges your sin, but then he offers you an exchange for your sin. He offers you purity for your impurity. He offers you beauty for ashes. Jesus is not afraid of your sin. He is fully able to deal with it. In fact, he already dealt with it. The only problem is you have to realize he dealt with it and accept the free gift of grace that he offers you. Let's say say for a second that I offered you a billion dollars. A lot of money. Say I offered you a billion bucks and was like, look, I just want to give you this gift of a billion dollars. And you're like, I don't think I can receive that gift. Like, I don't even know what to do with a billion dollars. I don't even know what a billion dollars looks like. I don't even understand fully how many zeros are there for a billion dollars. Like, I would not even know what to do with it. I certainly wouldn't know how to manage it. Like, I make 50 grand a year. Like, I I don't even manage that very well. Like, I've been doing stupid stuff that I shouldn't do with that. Like, I'll probably waste and destroy this billion dollars. Like, I, no, like I, I don't deserve it. Like I can't take that. I'm, I'm not worthy of that billion dollars. If someone offers you a billion dollars, take the money and figure it out. <laughs> Just take the money. We can learn how to work with this thing. Like we haven't experienced it before. We don't even understand it. We can figure it out. If you can't figure it out, take it and come and ask me and I can help you figure out what to do with it. I can think of some stuff. There's this Mustang that I used to drive. Like We can start with that. Take the money and figure it out. If you don't understand how big the grace of God is, take it and learn how to walk with it. Take it and learn how to live with it. Learn how to function with it. You probably don't understand it. You don't even know what to do with it. That's okay. Jesus and his grace will walk with you. He'll surround you with a family to help you learn how to walk this out. Take the gift of God. Don't walk away from it. Jesus is standing in front of you saying, I will forgive you. Don't look at him and say, you can't forgive me. He's saying he will. Just take the billion bucks. Take the immeasurable, immense grace of God and learn how to walk it out. You don't know how to walk it out, neither do I. I'm still learning, and you'll be learning for the rest of your life. But take it and learn how to walk it out. There's a saying, and I tried to figure out who um, tried to figure out who said it, but I couldn't figure out who said it, so I can't give the person credit, but I really liked it. He's talking about original sin, and he says the root of all sin is the de-godding of God. The root of all sin is the de-godding of God. Now, I have kind of a, a, a little bit of a confrontation for that person who feels like their sin is so big. Like, we look at the person who says their sin is so big, and we kind of have compassion about them. Like, 
on them, like they feel like they screwed this thing up so bad, but there's actually something a little bit ugly below the surface if that's you this morning who feels that way. The person who feels like they have out the cross of Christ, what you're actually doing is you're elevating yourself above Christ. There's actually a ton of pride involved in that position where you think you could do something bad bigger than God could do that could solve the bad thing that you did. It's like you elevate yourself to above God and you say, I will decide what God can do. And I will decide what God can't do. And I have a, a message for you. It's actually a prophetic word from God that I have for you this morning. You're an awful God. How's that for a prophetic word? You're an awful, horrible God. You're terrible at it. Stop trying to be God. You have no idea how to do it because you're not God. So stop pretending like you are. The position that you take in this story in relationship to this is you say, I'm a sheep. It's okay. I'm a sheep. He's the good shepherd. I'm not the good shepherd. I'm just a sheep. And if he says something's good for me, it's good for me. And I just accept whatever he brings into my life. If you're struggling with this this morning and you feel like you have out the grace of God, I just want to encourage you to take the billion dollars. Take the huge gift. of the, the gift of the grace of God is worth so much more than a billion dollars. Your eternity is literally hanging in the balance. Take the gift of the grace of God and learn how to walk it out. He'll bring people around you to help you. The second response that people have to the message of the gospel, to this message about the good shepherd, is, well, of course. Of course he would forgive me. Of course he would love me. This is kind of the nonchalant approach to the message of the gospel. This is the person who doesn't seem to be moved by grace. There's actually two people that could be in this camp, and I want to tell you who they are. The first person in this camp is the comparer, someone who compares themselves to somebody else and then feels good about themselves. So you're like in this place with God, and you look at your friend Fred, and it's like, Fred's life is a disaster. Like, he just left his wife, he just got fired from work for stealing, he's drunk by about 10 o'clock in the morning. Like, Fred is a disaster, and because Fred is such a joke, I'm doing pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. You look at your friend Susie, and you say, Susie lies about everyone, she cheats, she steals, like she's a horrible wife, and because of that, I feel pretty good about myself. And you come to God and you say, God, here I am, like look at Fred, he's a disaster, look at Susie, she's a mess, here I am, like look at how good I am, look at what I've done. And God looks at it and he says, looks like filthy rags to me, it looks like a mess to me, because you cannot judge yourself based on someone else. Like you surrounded yourself with morons to feel better about yourself, and you look at them and you're like, hey, I'm doing pretty good. No, they're just a bigger disaster than you are, but you're both in the same ship of disasters. Like you have no righteousness in you at all. Romans 10.3 says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness 
have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That's not me calling you ignorant. That's the Bible calling you ignorant. It'd be better if I was calling you ignorant because I'm going to be here and gone tomorrow. But the Bible is here to stay forever. There's a Bible saying if you're trying to prove your own righteousness through your works, you're ignorant. It's never going to work. If your righteousness is built on being better than someone else, the Bible calls that self-righteousness. And that sacrifice is not pleasing to the Lord. So that's the first camp that someone puts themselves in is the, the comparer. The second person in this camp is the educated. This is someone who memorizes scripture, someone who shows up at life group and seems to know the right answer to every question and talks to you in a conversation and they quote scripture and they want to talk about theological ideas and concepts. They've read the word of God, listen, but the word of God has never read them. They never let the Word of God read them. They read the Word of God like it was an awesome historical book, but they didn't look at it like it was a mirror that was showing them the sin that was in their heart. This is the person who listens to every sermon, who shows up faithfully, but it seems like the gospel message just doesn't seem to penetrate their heart. This person probably has a stack of books on their coffee table with the Bible and a bunch of other spiritual books, and they look the part, but the grace of God just doesn't seem to impact their heart. The grace of God has never caused them to obey or to worship or to repent or to be thankful. I got to tell you, this is such a dreary, dry, miserable way to live out your faith. It's dry, dead religion, and I don't want anything to do with it. Like, I couldn't get far enough away from that. I would rather walk with someone who's struggling like crazy to walk out their faith, but they have a burning passion in their heart for Jesus. I don't want to sit next to someone who knows every scripture, but it's meaningless to them. I want to walk with someone who reads the word of God and finds the God of the Bible in the Bible, not just words to read on a page, but actually finds God in the book. There's a third response that we can have to this message of the gospel. There's a third response that we can have to the story Jesus tells about the good shepherd. And the third response is to worship and obey. This is the way that we should respond to the message of the gospel with soft hearts. People with soft hearts who are open to hearing what the Holy Spirit is saying will hear the gospel and they'll respond with obedience in their heart and they'll want to worship. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in their heart to the Lord. The scripture talks about let the word of God dwell among you richly. I don't think I've ever heard someone use the word dwell in like normal language outside of church, and maybe outside of reading that particular scripture. Dwelling is, is an ancient idea. Fortunately, it's something that's extinct. Our whole world is built around speed and efficiency, like not dwelling. And dwelling is not fast and it's not efficient. It's just spending time, spending time with God because we love him. And the scripture says it leads to worship, it leads to singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. I could never oversell the benefit 
of living a lifestyle of worship and obedience, having a heart that wants to worship him and wants to obey him. This is the proper response to hearing the gospel. I'm going to ask you this morning, how do you respond to hearing the gospel? How do you respond today to the message of the gospel? How do you respond to this, the gospel wrapped up in a story about this good shepherd who protects us and loves us, provides direction and correction and protection in our lives? If you're the person who says, no way, not me, the, the grace of God is not big enough for my sin, I want to encourage you this morning, today can be your day. The grace of God is so big, there's nothing you could possibly have ever done in your life that God can't deal with by his grace. The Bible is packed full of stories about Jesus' long-suffering and patience with people. We have murderers and adulterers and prostitutes and IRS agents, and Jesus is in there with all of them, forgiving their sins, every single one of them. We have thousands of years of church history where we've watched Jesus forgive the sins of all of mankind that have been willing to surrender to him. You are not somehow so big that God's grace can't reach you and deal with your sin. And if this morning you're wrestling with sin, wrestling with some past sin in your life or current sin, I want you to know the grace of God can cover that. If this morning you're in this place where you've been around the gospel message, you've been around church, but it doesn't seem to penetrate your heart, I want to encourage you that probably one, it's one of those two reasons of you're someone who is comparing yourself to others and feeling good about yourselves and trying to offer God that self-righteousness of, God, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not as bad as that other person. Or you're probably someone who's in the educated camp who has been all about memorizing the word of God and learning biblical concepts, but it has never really penetrated your heart. I want to encourage you that today can be your day. It can be the day that you can meet with Jesus in a way that's real, more real than anything you've ever experienced in your life before. I want to end by doing something a little different. I want to end by reading a psalm together. And it's actually kind of crazy. So this psalm was written by David like a thousand years before Jesus wrote this story about the good shepherd. And it's almost like Jesus, if you read this psalm that David wrote, it's like you could read it and go, did he just hear the story that Jesus told about the good shepherd and this was his response? It literally sounds like he listened to the story of Jesus talking about being the good shepherd and responded by writing this song. But he wrote it a thousand years earlier. The reason that this psalm that he wrote can sound so much like the story that Jesus told to try and explain the gospel is because David had encountered the God that Jesus had showed up to try and show the world. David had interacted with the God of the universe so much and then he would write these psalms out of it, and he talks, literally talks about the shepherd. And he does it because he had encountered God, and in that encounter with God, he looked at it and he went, this is who you are, you're the good shepherd. And then Jesus shows up and he says, I am the good shepherd. A thousand years later, and as we read this this morning, I want you to know that this can be true for you this morning. Not just for David, not just for those people that heard Jesus tell this story, but it can be true for you too. Would you read this psalm with me? It goes like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Sounds like a response to Jesus' story where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Would you bow your heads this morning? Lord, I pray for each person that's here this morning, whatever place they're in. Lord, for those that have wandered off and found themselves here this morning, Lord, I ask that they would be found by you. For those that have been in a season where they feel like they've been broken, where you brought correction into their life, and they feel like they're in that hard place, Lord, I ask that they would fall in love with you like that lamb around your neck. Those people that have wandered off time and time again and chased other things, Lord, I ask that in the season that you have them in, they would fall in love with you so deeply that they would never wander off again. For each one of us who are here that have to respond to the message of the gospel, for those that are saying, no way, not me, my sin is too big, I've done too much, Lord, I ask that today they would receive the gift of the immeasurable grace of God. For those who have drowned themselves in intellectual things, who have studied books and read the Bible, listened to sermons, but it hasn't ever changed their heart. They've read the Bible, but they haven't really met with the God of the Bible. Lord, I ask that they would meet you that each one of us, that our response to hearing the gospel would be obedience and worship. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who has never surrendered their life to you before or anyone who has wandered off before and they want to come home, Lord, I ask that today would be the day they come home. If that's you this morning, if you have actually never surrendered your life to the Lord. Or if you've found yourself wandered off and wondering, could you come home? Could God possibly deal with this sin in my life? I just want to ask you just to raise your hand and say, God, I hear you. And I'm responding by saying, I want to surrender to you. I want to come home. I don't want to stay far off. Lord, you see each person who raised their hand. You see each person that said they want to come home. And Lord, I ask you to welcome them with open arms, the same way you've welcomed each of us, that they would feel your presence, wrap your arms around them this morning, that the sin that felt so big would all of a sudden look super small compared to our big, powerful, good shepherd. Lord, as we go through our week, I ask that you would help us to become more aware of your presence. That we wouldn't just go through life like the sheep just wandering around the field doing our own thing. 
but we would follow your direction. We would receive your protection. And Lord, if you have correction to bring in our life, that we would receive it. That we wouldn't love our sin, the thing that we ran off to, more than you. Lord, I ask you to bless each one as they go from this place this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. If you gave your life to Jesus this morning and you want to talk to somebody, I just want to encourage you to come and talk to me and I'll help you figure out how to walk that out and how to take the next step in your journey with Jesus. Bless you guys. Have an awesome week.